Welcome to Art from the Outside, a podcast for anyone who wants an outside-in look at the art world. I'm Amitha Raman. And I'm Will Pally. And each episode, we're talking to the people who inspire us to help unravel the arts. Hey, Amitha. How's it going? It's going well. How are you doing, Will? Yeah, I'm really good. And I'm especially excited about this episode because it's an artist who I was familiar with, but then I actually got to see an incredible exhibition that they had at the Kunsthalle in Basel this summer. And what was even better was that I was also able to see them giving a performance to accompany their exhibition. So I'm so, so excited about this conversation. Me too. I'm really happy to share this episode because I actually had the opportunity to meet this artist in person last week at the Going Dark exhibition opening at the Guggenheim. And I have to say, after four seasons of doing this project, that really is the most rewarding part, is being able to have conversations with these incredible thinkers. And when you're able to actually meet these heroes in person, it's a really special experience. This episode, we are hugely excited to be joined by the artist Tiana Nakia McLaughlin. Tiana is a visual artist, filmmaker, and curator whose work explores and critiques issues at the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, and social commentary. Born in Blytheville, Arkansas, and raised in Greenville, South Carolina, Tiana weaves narratives through archives, memories, and objects integral to her past and present, that shape her broader practice. In 2022, Tiana's exhibitions at The Shed and 52 Walker, alongside her year-long installation at MoMA in New York, garnered significant acclaim, prompting the New York Times to identify Tiana as one of the most singular artists of our aesthetically rich, free-range time. Tiana's work has been shown at the Kunsthalle Basel, the Institute of Contemporary Art Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the MoMA in New York, the Whitney, the New Museum, and the Haus der Kulturen der Welt in Berlin, among many, many others. And very excitingly, just in September, Tiana opened up the exhibition Tiana Nakia McClodden, Play Me Home at the Baltimore Museum. Tiana, we are so, so thrilled to have you today. Thanks for joining and welcome. Thank you for having me. It was funny when um, we were doing our research. I think one of the things that was so fascinating was you're active in so many different spheres, you know, curator. You gave a wonderful, I was listening to your poetry reading to accompany the Chrissa exhibition at DIA. And so it's hard to condense so many different accomplishments and activities in so many different fields into such a short bio. So my apologies for probably omitting a lot of what should have been there, but uh, that was my best shot at cherry picking a couple highlights. It's all good. <laughs> I don't know how to keep track of it these days anyhow. <laughs> Well, Tiana, to start us off, we always like to start with a little bit of the personal. So could you share with us a bit about your background, how your upbringing in the South impacted you during your formative years? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the impact is one that is very strange as I didn't have much access to the arts at all. And my engagement with the arts, as people know me to be an artist within this space now, 
came mostly through books and very, very dated books, to be <laughs> you know honest. I had a very healthy engagement with film my whole life early on, and that is very much due to my father's in, you know, interest in cinema as a viewer, like someone who would always go to the movies as early as I can remember. But the actual like visual art culture, my first interactions came from the Greenville Memorial Library when my father, you know, helped meet me at a point, I think, of understanding that I was an advanced reader. I was a very advanced reader, like severely advanced, I say, because <laughs> it wasn't exactly able to be sustained within my schooling. So like mm. in the third grade, I was maybe at a 10th grade reading level. Wow. Wow. And that was with my, you know, kind of a comprehensive understanding of what was going on because of the way that reading would work with the way my father did. He would have, he, he basically said you could read anything as long as you can talk about it. So nothing was really off the table for me. And so I got an, access to an adult library card. He would check out anything that I wanted. And um, as long as it was within reason, but everything was within reason because this Greenville, the, you know, the library was very pretty much sterile to be <laughs> Pre-censored. Um, yeah, like, I mean, you know, people were talking about banned books and I'm like, that was, that was like the state of my being, you know, um, banned oh, wow. books, banned films. Like, um, and I could say, you know, in the South, we were limited, and this is in general, because most artists now that I um, come across who had the same kind of engagement with the library and seeing, you know, art, we're limited by your librarian's interests, right? And wow. my, my librarian, if you can imagine, is an older, white, Southern, born and raised woman. And so you're really limited by that first, their awareness, and then this other kind of categorical area. And so... The only art that I got to see that I can clearly recall that took me, and I still reference to this day, Jacob Lawrence, wow. you know, images, and then African art definitively, you know, like uh, books on African art, ethnographic books, because those were kind of the artists of the time. I, I'm sure I came across other um, Black older artists, which is why probably I have an affection. You know, I often tell people like, you know, even our field trips in the South, we went to Stone Mountain. We went to these weird science museums where you're seeing like dioramas with, you know, Native American, like horrible mm, colonial stuff. So we weren't really yeah. going to art museums. <laughs> so honestly, I, I don't go into my first art museum until I'm 19 years old, which when I get out of Greenville during my like first year of college in Atlanta, Georgia. And so, you know, I go to the High Art Museum and I also get to see the museum spaces and galleries that are on, in the HBCU where I went to Clark Atlanta. So, but I will say this, because I don't want to cut it out and I've never been able to speak about it publicly is that what I understood to be so common end up re revealing itself as a particular kind of art that I had access to, which is folk art. Mm. Folk art in the South operated and still operates in some ways as something so casual. Again, I, I like I've gone back as an adult and I understand there's galleries that sell folk art. <laughs> you know what I mean? But the way that uh, folk art, black folk art operated was that you had this guy who's at a garage that my dad used to hang out with who was making these weird sculptures of abandoned tires or metal. I didn't really, I kind of took that for granted, but I still 
I think had a, a kind of like affection for it. I didn't identify it as art in the eyes in the ways that art was presented to me in like art class. Mm. But um, I think my knowledge uh, and as well as the the art and folk art and the ways that I see it in my upbringing is very high to this day. Like so, those artists are um, hyper influential to me as well. It's so interesting that you had this incredibly diverse set of, well, diverse and then in some regards very constricted set of influences and experience, you know, being exposed, relating to folk art, also to sort of amazing artists like Jacob Lawrence, while also feeling somewhat restricted, it sounds like, with the library that it was this sort of curated, maybe sounds like a generous term. I wanted to know what do you think for you came first in terms of, you know, your filmmaking, your curating, your sculptural practice? You know, you didn't do, uh, from what I understand, an MFA. And that's a very interesting journey for me. So I'm curious, you know, you said you first went to the art museum when you were 19. I'd love to learn a little bit more. Yeah, I was wanted to be a filmmaker. So that's like the thing that I wanted to be as soon as I saw film. Like, you know, wow. it, it held such a um, magical and there was no way of me understanding how it was made <laughs> growing <laughs> up the way that I grew up. I was just like, I don't even, 19 is also like probably like 20 is when I first touch a camera, wow. like a, a video camera as well. It's like not something that is a part of my life. I grew up taking photographs. So my father had a camera, he would give me photos. So I have all these photos that I took as a child on these like kind of disposable cameras and things like that. But the film and moving image to me was the relay from books. Books for me still to this day hold a, a significant value. And um, I think that my there was something that was met by watching and taking in so much cinema. And mind you, I was like such a deeply serious child. It's almost like scary to think about. <laughs> so I I actually, you know, when I would go to the dollar VHS rental store, I'm looking literally at foreign films sometimes with the burnt in subtitles because I can read, you know. Wow. Some of the things that I had access to and was taking in was equally very advantageous, but also muted as well because I grew up in a, um, for a good part of my life up until the age of 13, a very hyper-Christian household. But again, oddly with that area, I watched mostly anything that didn't have like sex scenes and, you know, stuff like that. But there are some things that um, passed me by just because there are also films that just did not come to um, South Carolina in that way. But that is, that's the core. I mean, you know, I come from a military family. And when I got to the point of like graduating high school, I had to be forced to take this particular ASVAB test that would help you place yourself in this military context because that was what was thought that I would do was go to the military. So I had to kind of make secret my desire um, to go to college to pursue filmmaking because I was also the first person to go to college in my family. And so filmmaking is what I um, took up when I went to Clark Atlanta University because I was there for two years, like 2000 to 2002. I did double psychology and film major, kind of to hide a little bit of what I really wanted to do. So film is, the, that's the thing that starts making sense of like, I think, you know, when I try to give an example of 
how I do all these things is because I think a lot of those things encompass what it takes to make a film. Well, I was curious, just kind of as a follow-up question to that, you mentioned that you do now work in all of these other mediums, including installation, video, sculpture, et cetera. But what strategies or ways of working in film do you bring into those other mediums? I think that the, first of all, like (laughs) one of the things that I um, am skilled at is like being aware of money (laughs) for myself. Um, That's good. And this is this is about like, uh, and not even about how much money I make, because I am also, I think, aware and skilled at that. But there is a, um, uh, the back end, like filmmaking is this kind of <laughs> delusional space where you get to dream big. But then when you come into the place of like understanding how to make a film, money is the first thing on the table. <laughs> like when you get a line producer to assess your script, they basically return a figure that tells you how much it costs, right? And Oftentimes, you're your first line producer, so you have to make sense of that. And I, first and foremost, bring that to the reality of, like, I'm always aware of my materials. And it creates a space that I think I've benefited from because, oddly, as much as I have made and as much as I think some of my materials are very expensive, I'm still very frugal in the ways that I deal with things because I just don't like to make mess or make excess. And that's something that is core. The next thing is like narrative. Conceptual practice to me is no different from writing the narratives that I, you know, wrote for earlier projects that are, that never will be made. (laughs) So there's an aspect of like, you know, I still like consider the work that I make, approach it like a filmmaker, but it's to me, it's all about the world building. And that's something that I, um, I refuse to kind of let go that marries both of those practices. I was reflecting on what you said about world building. And I was going to ask if you could talk to us about, you know, the installation just that just opened at the Baltimore Museum. But then I was also thinking about, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to see your exhibition I- I- at the Kunsthalle in Basel and fortunate enough actually to attend your performance, which was amazing. It was so intense. It was like, I haven't seen anything that intense in a, in a long time. But Amitra and I were talking about it and and we were like, Tiana does so much. And and so it's interesting to compare, you know, the installation that you have at the Baltimore Museum, which is sort of, you know, sound and, and sculptural objects. It has two horns and a script and seeds. And it's a four channel video with the installation that you did in Basel, which is has one film and then lots of sculptures um, and then the... Um, I forget, the sleep apnea machine in in the center. So I don't know where I was going with that, but I think it was my mind making all those connections because Amitra and I had been talking and, uh, <laughs> you know, all of the sort of, you know, the world building, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've just, I've laughed because... Um... Sometimes it's, it's, I like to hear how people say it because it's so, like, I think it's just as crazy <laughs> as <laughs> people, uh, uh, they're like, yeah, so this, this, and I like the fact, I joke with my friends, I'm like, you know, if somebody tried to describe my shit, it probably sound like they're lying. Like, it just it doesn't make sense <laughs> off top, um, which is like why people usually have to see it and they're just like, oh gosh, I get it now that I'm there, but they don't even really know what they get, which is what I like, which is, I think very much what I strive for, like I get it fully top down, right? It's like so simple and and sometimes very basic, but I think that that weirdness is something I always am very fascinated how it sits on people. 
but that's like kind of my base rule is that I'm always very aware of um, what is happening in my life right now. Like why, like I question myself, uh, like why am I making this work right now? And that's something to um, oddly push against trends, you know, what people would consider as aspects of forecasting within the art world. Cause I think I see a lot of that cause I notice patterns, you know, people will do certain things that are popular. And not everything that happens in my life is very popular. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that Play Me Home, that's up at uh, uh, Baltimore Museum of Art, is is a great example in its presentation because it's not really considered, quite frankly, a solo exhibition. It's um, an acquisition presentation. So it's seated in their contemporary galleries, much like my Brad Johnson project was um, presented at the, at MoMA. It's like gives an example of what a acquisition of mine looks like. And sometimes it looks like a whole room dedicated to the work mm. as opposed to like a single painting or, you know, object. When you mentioned earlier that your practice or your artwork is a reflection of what's going on in your life, it made me think of some of the communities that you're a part of and how your work often highlights communities such as the BDSM and kink community or the African and Afro-Cuban spiritual community, which are not necessarily always represented in the mainstream art world. So I'm curious how you became engaged in those communities and how they've contributed to your development as a thinker and artist. Yeah, I mean, uh, the goal or my life's work is to do work that takes a chance at centering every part of who I am, right? Mm. Um, wow. That's kind of my baseline, which is why things come out so strange. And, you know, the identity... This is where I can say this is like, I'm not afraid of identity politics and I don't see, the, see it as a prison because I think that there's a, um, you know, the intersectionality of how these things work together can reveal that it is not always a uh, lovely place to, to be as an individual is, who, who has a multiplicity of these identities. Like I like to refer to myself, I've spoken on this before, as like a bit of a riot or like a, you know, kind of combustible thing because there's various things that I am that if you isolate them, they don't necessarily get along with each other. They'll probably try to kill each other. Whether it's BDSM and kink, uh, which is like, I think the thing that the art world likes the most just because it's, it's tantalizing to them is very mundane for me. My spiritual practice is like something that to me is probably the more important part of my life, being a, you know, a queer dyke, you know, a butch is something, you know, being Black, being someone who specifically works within African traditional religion within that, being a woman, all these things are very, you know, much important to me. I can't say that I necessarily have gotten involved with them. They're just inherently part of who I am. But like with BDSM kink, the way that I have tried to engage with my like explorations through object and material or writing, is that I do try to like reference and also, if anything, make visible people who are a part of my community and not as a social change project, but more as a just a like, you know, I'm a part of something, you know? And so it's weird. I think the year of 2019 was a great example of how this kind of worked in the same space because my work, I Pray to the Wrong God for You, that was in the Whitney Biennial, explicitly digging deep into my um, religion and my spiritual practice as a, you know, a priestess of Ogun within Santeria Lukumi. But then I had this event that celebrated the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, where I invited the entire 
SM Kink community to take over the Whitney Museum and turn it kind of into a dungeon. That's amazing. Um, which was very successful. I that it that <laughs> I want to hear all of like <laughs> very successful. But I mean, it, like, and and even with that, it was this thing where you know there's critics about it because people are like, oh my god, you're doing this, you know. But I was like, the Whitney Museum is built on the land of SM and Kink. I mean, these people. Uh, it's the meat market. It's the, the meat market. Meat packing. Like, <laughs> yeah, come like, on. Yeah, guys. but they, but most people there, it's like a historical amnesia. You know, like they really believe yeah. that what is there is what is there. You know, I think that one of the things that is very important to me is to be very honest um, with myself, which sometimes puts me in a hostile kind of relationship with my um, audience, because you know people want you to be who they want you to be. There are people even now who want me just to do kink. You know, there are people very shocked that I um, put up a show that's literally about my family who are post-reconstruction, you know, like sharecroppers and land, you know, farmers in the Delta. And and because the way that this thing works is in categorization, first and foremost. But the biggest thing that I can do or my pride is that I can show up as a full self. You know, nothing gets cut. The thing that I go back to the Whitney uh, year or whatever, 2019, was that I wasn't going to stop being a dom just because I had my <laughs> religious work. <laughs> like, like, yes. I, like, this is who I, I was in there when I was in my leather jacket in Cuba, you know, or in my leather jacket in Nigeria saluting this thing. This is like, I'm all these things at the same time, but I do like to try to look at things from that perspective of this like wild thing, you know. Because I do feel that that is what gives me a different perspective. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I was going to ask, I think that's, I'm thinking about what you said about being your whole self all the time. I'm, I'm butchering your words a little bit. But this idea of, of you know, showing up as a dom in, in your leather jacket in Nigeria, in, in Cuba, and having all of those identities be embodying those all at the same time. And I'm like, how do you do that? That is very, it sounds cheesy, but I think that's very inspiring. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can, they not only contest with each other, but they contest with the circumstances around those identities. So I'm like, how do you, how do you, where'd you get the strength? <laughs> I don't know. I think that it's something that started as a young child. I mean, I think this, quite frankly, is part of my therapy. Uh, as <laughs> an seriously, as a person yeah. with ASD, as an autistic person, there's certain things that I just, you know, <laughs> for better or for worse, don't clock as a particular difficulty. There's also, you know, I mean, to be very honest, there's a whole lot of suffering for many years, early on years of like trying to, when I am not an adult, quite frankly, because I have been gay forever. Like, you know, like this is one thing, you know, I've been like, like I, like I came out at 13 to my siblings. Like, you know, there's a, there's a part of a, a real, like I will say suffering period of like not having a particular control or ability to control my own life. So then when I got to that place to be able to do and to hold myself and hold my life and hold myself accountable, to me, it was a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer to like kind of release some of that stress because I like the way that it makes me feel. And most of it is not about being an antagonistic person. It's not like I'm not interested in provocators. I think they're like provocators are like lost subs of the world. <laughs> 
But I do think that there is something that is very important to note that it is a dangerous way of living. I wanted to switch topics a bit because you did bring up that you are someone that lives with autism spectrum disorder. Can you explain why this is important for you to explore in your practice? Mm. I mean, it just is like something that cuts through everything. <laughs> I tell people, I'm like, <laughs> that's what I do wake up and I'm like, holy shit. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah. whether it's a sensorial thing, I wake up now for whatever reason, you know, my um, brightness and stuff is on the on the fritz. Sometimes I wake up and things are normal. Sometimes I'm waking up like, whoa, like I, I can barely see. It's so bright. And uh, it doesn't seem to be easing up as I get older. But this is something that, again, go back into 2019 when I was formally diagnosed. Prior to that, I was I, like, I mean, one thing that I like to say is that as an autistic adult, I was also an autistic child, right? Mm-hmm. There's mm. a lot of things that I um, dealt with uh, as a kid that siblings could speak to <laughs> that um, just made things very hard for me. And there's no support and there was no understanding or awareness to what could help to ease, you know, any of it. The thing that I had as a gift was that I would just be kind of left alone, you know, <laughs> like I was so smart. I was so quiet. I was so serious that I could be left alone uh, to kind of like have to sort through things myself, which is good and bad, but I did better for it. I first was made aware that I may be on the autism um, spectrum. In 2001, I still have the um, counseling card that I got from the counselor at, in college because I had, um, I had a very hard uh, time transitioning from high school to college. I chose to go to Clark Atlanta University against a lot of these like private white institutions. Clark, Clark Atlanta University is a historically black college and university. I graduated as a, you know, from an international baccalaureate um, high school AP, you know, student, very, I guess, gifted in like school or whatever. So the school that I went to is not a school, you know, wasn't a school for academics at all. It had a different kind of cultural relevance that I was interested in being. I wanted to go to school and I wanted to study with black folks, uh, black teachers and specifically black film people. And so what I did not account for in my Naivete is like, I didn't understand like that we were going from, I mean, I was in classes where it was four people. Like you understand, like my school was a a school that's half and half, right? In high school, international baccalaureate, international studies is like, you if, if you get into that program, you're on the same hallway for all four years. Your teachers are very specific. Then the you're in the larger school at lunch, you know, and then I played sports, so I was around everybody during that time. College was like, I'm going from like four in a class to like 35. The sound alone, the um, just not being able to like, I mean, sound, smell, uh, uh, lights. I remember one time a class, I like had to leave the class so the clock was ticking too loud. I just had wow. this... Um, very, very crazy, like, uh, experience. And it came down to this point where I was in this, um, is a critical, I think a critical studies, critical theory class. (laughs) Some shit that they try and take away Um, now. But um, I was in this class, and it was a mandatory, it was core class, and I failed a test. I don't fail tests. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh shit! I don't. I, that's not my life. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> never. And I wish my, I was that way. <laughs> my teacher pulled me to the side because I was active in class as much as I could, and he was just like, "I don't understand what this is." And he basically asked me all the questions, and I just said it. Told him he was like. I don't understand what's going on. And he like wrote me a recommendation to go to the counseling. And the teacher, like, I think the last one was, last session was like, I, you know, you may be on the, you know, you may have autism. It wasn't even spectrum disorder at that point. It was just like, you might have autism. And I was like, absolutely not. Mm. Like, you know, at that point, because I did not have a good relationship to what um, autism could be or was. And this is like 2001. There was no, like the internet was barely a thing. Um, and I remember going into my um, dorm college room and trying to even look up stuff. And it was just horrible trying to like make sense of things. And so I, I you know, stuffed that to the side. A close friend of mine was like, you need to go see about, you know, some shit. And it doesn't mm. flag for everybody else. I think the things that, you know, the way that I am, my uh, aloneness and you know, maybe withdrawal is a thing that people would just find as a characteristic. Like, you know, they're like, oh, she's cool and broody and, uh, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, especially yeah, yeah. being an artist, it's almost like yeah, mysterious. They yeah. They're like, wow, yeah, she's a mysterious person. You know, like, she always leaves the <laughs> room amazing. and it doesn't come back. And I'm like, meanwhile, I'm like, dying. <laughs> I can um, relate. I can relate. <laughs> like, I, the thing that set my friend off is like, I remember I wasn't going to come to my opening for the Julie C. Smith retrospective. I showed up an hour late and I was just like, and my friends were like, what's wrong with you? And then, but then also I felt like my brain was on display in a certain way and they were almost like, what is wrong with you? This is crazy. <laughs> like, this is a crazy uh, figuration or, or something. And either way, I just wanted to have a better of a, a hold of what that would be. And so when it first shows up in my work is in 2019 with my, my solo show, Hold On, Let Me Take the Safety Off. And in my uh, like kind of like statement essay, I dedicate it to my niece and my nephew as a kind of like, you know, like one day you'll understand this, you know. Oh, um, that's so beautiful. Yeah, there's there's significant parts of, you know, my life, and I have to say this because I don't have the best relationship to my family. And it's not about any, you know, like, it's not because I'm gay or anything or, <laughs> uh, you know, like some people would think you know, being Black from the South in this way. That's not the reason. I've always had a bit of a, a issue or a survivor's guilt because I'm one of the few of my family that doesn't have a lot of the, you know, issues or with vices and things like that. And there's this element, I think one of, my proudest moments was that when I did share exclusively with my sister, because I still haven't told my family. I think they probably read about the shit in a um, New York Times profile like everybody else. But um, I did tell my sister uh, because I, I wanted to give her some relief because she was having such a hard time having, you know, two two sons who were on the spectrum and it's just required a lot of, like, footwork. And I told her, I was like, you know what, you know, I'm going to tell her, you know. And it was a great conversation, very emotional. And she asked me, she said, will you come and will you tell, you know, my nephew, I'm going to not use his name. Will you come tell him that he's autistic before someone else does? Wow. And that was the proudest moment of like this whole experience of like trying to face this thing that is um, still to this day very hard for me to articulate 
because it 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 creates such a difficulty because it is it doesn't show up in the ways that people would think. And it's hard for me, the more I do, the more shows I have, the more every time something comes out, it counters against it. I want to switch gears for a moment and talk about your curatorial practice, because you've curated exhibitions in large venues like The Shed and The Kitchen and small venues like your own micro-gallery, Conceptual Fade. I wonder if you could just talk about that role reversal, what it's like for you to switch from artist to curator, and then as a follow-up question, we definitely want to get into more about the origins of Conceptual Fade. Yeah, I don't really switch. That's the thing I mm. always tell people. It's like, I'm always mm. an artist first. I, I never want to be a curator. <laughs> what I, do your curator friends say <laughs> when you say that? Well, some of, the, some of them are relieved. Because, you know, <laughs> Coming cura- for their job. <laughs> exactly. Curators have some of the biggest egos. So they're like, huh. You know, like, <laughs> I'm like I don't want to do amazing. what the hell y'all do. Ain't no way. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I like I, I try to do what I do at a same quality level because mm. I don't want to offend them because I do respect curators <laughs> so much. Like I like, like I really, a good curator can get, get probably the more submissive aspect of myself ever um, in life because I would love for somebody to just do something with my things. I'm an artist as a curator. I'm an artist who curates or, you know, that whole thing. The artist as curator is these books, the, the books that people produce. I fit that category and I bring my... Um, my artistic ability to what I curate within reason. And sometimes that does blur the line of where I can exist in those uh, spaces. Even if I do engage with a topic or, you know, individuals that I've spent time with, like, you know, Barbara Hammer. Great artist. Put in, you know, put my name up to curate her exhibition on her deathbed. You know, I didn't take that lightly. And I decided to produce a very specific show of her work that centered and uh, looked at, quite frankly, something that was pretty risky is like looking at the things that all her lovers gave her (laughs) because I felt like there was too much of a um, centering of this woman who had all these lovers. But it's like, what, what, let's look at the lovers, (laughs) you know, let's, let's, let's look at these women who, you know, gave this, this woman so much. And also like, um, I was very thrilled to do that work. You know, I bring that up because it's something that comes a little bit out of like my personal mission to deal with like black, like queer identity and aesthetics. That's like a part of my um, my practice overall is that I have to do these things that kind of look at these intersections, but I look through blackness and all these other things that I am. Engaging with um, Barbara Hammer, who's this white, <laughs> you know, lesbian, but she's also this person who is one of the filmmakers that I liked. <laughs> and um, she was one of the few older lesbian filmmakers that came and told me that I was doing a good job. You know what I mean? <laughs> like she, yeah, wow. she um, I had the pleasure to meet her. I think it was like 2018. I think it was, she came to my MoMA Monday presentation. The first thing the woman said to me is she came out <laughs> out of nowhere and she was like I'm dying and then she gave me a <laughs> hug and I was like and then she was like Whoa, you know I'm gonna try to stay for your thing but I just wanna tell you you really got it you got it and it was wow. so oh, yes. moving for me but it was mm-hmm. so fast and I kept looking up in the audience to see if she was there because she was saying how hard it was for her to sit and she stayed the whole time you know and it was like this huge it was a huge honor for me you know so I had this like mission that I took on to do that work 
and to um, really go at her uh, uh, work at a way that also highlighted her at her strongest. Because I think that she handled her work so well at the end of her life. Uh, she was very, like, presentations on her dying. She gave that lecture at MoMA, or I think it was the Whitney Museum, one of those. But she was very aware. She showed photographs. You know, she was very much active until she took her last breath. Um, and so I wanted to look at this interior person at the beginning of their lesbian identity. You know, like, literally, the core of my show was when she like rides off on her own motorcycle from her husband and it's like, I'm a lesbian across the country. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, like, I mean, but in that show, you know, I'll give it as an example because the centerpiece, which is this motorcycle, that is the same model motorcycle that she had. That This was the show you did a company yeah, gallery. Yeah, the show I did a company. That was, that's my sculpture. Like I got that bike, broke it down, had it, you know, chromed out and turned into this mirror and drained of all these fluids to sit as this like, you know, kind of monument in the center of the room. I had a, my last mission with that show is like, I felt like <laughs> the, the identity of lesbian was becoming antiquated. Like people were really trying to turn us into dinosaurs. <laughs> um, and I was like, there's a, a horrible, like deep, break within intergenerational engagement. My proudest moment was on the opening night when it was so, it was too crowded for like <laughs> COVID restrictions, but all the little cool <laughs> queers and all the yes. old dykes came out of their houses <laughs> and they were Fuck in the same yes. space and everybody was like, you know, like the old, the, the old dykes were like, you made me feel cool. Like, you know, the, the young people are asking me questions. I was like, good, good, good. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the young, you know, young folks are like, I'm a lesbian too. You know, like, like it's now like a a, a, a rare edgy thing. <laughs> so, so I was very proud of that. So, Tiana, I guess I want to switch us a little bit now to something it's a little bit frivolous, but probably one of our favorite parts of, of the conversation is the art kiki. Did you read about what the art yeah, kiki I is? Yeah, I listened to the, <laughs> I got a good one. Oh, good. Oh, yes. well, sorry, you really are just an overachiever. <laughs> yeah, I got to study. I got to know what's going on. Art kiki, I was like, oh, that's actually what made me go. I was like, whoa, I know what a kiki is. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> here for it. Do you want to just, is there anything you want to kiki about? Yeah. We're here for I, it. I, I'm interested in kiki about these curators leaving these museums. Mm. That's spicy. No, I know. Look, look, look. See? I told you. I was going to come with it. Because nobody, like, nobody wants to talk about it. I have a lot of things to say about it. And I, I'm on the curator's side. Me too. You know? And I don't think that uh, maybe people were being vocal enough. I was on their side last year uh, before it got to this, like, fever pitch where it's now being covered in, like, you know, different news outlets. It's like, as an independent curator... I have the pleasure of going into institutions or galleries or whatever, and I get to do my thing, and I get to sometimes have funding that comes with me, and I get out of there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a dream job. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like, and it's a, it's hard. Like, I am not rich. You know, I don't have the, you know, some some curators have these lives. Like, you know, and I think that's where it gets really muddied. And so I'm advocating, I'm shooting bell, as we say, to the curators who don't have 
those lives um, who are just rigorous and want to do their work. I'm not talking about the rich curators who are like, don't have jobs and, you know, have secret banker <laughs> partners. But like, I think the, um, the reality is that, and this comes from having a lot of peers and f- good friends of mine who are curators. People don't know that a curator, especially in this climate, you're working two to three year cycles. You got to go research. Uh, you, you know, you have to present your work to a huge panel of curators sometimes who are above you. And then you got to deal with these trustees, right? And these people, based on their own interests, uh, can basically shoot your idea down. And so I happen to be a strong advocate, especially for the curators who are interested in doing things that, again, are not on trend and are trying to take risks. And the reason that I have this um, positionality is because I know for a fact, based on like at least three curatorial projects that I was supposed to be a part of that actually got shot down, because they're maybe like too edgy, the mo- that people don't think the money is there. One of the things that is getting, I think, conflated in, uh, or mixed up in this like, you know, post-COVID um, moment where everybody's claiming they don't have money is that they've pulled out all the, uh, you know, old guard white artists to put these old, you know, what they call old master shows back up to make these, you know, make the money. In the meanwhile, there's curators with really daring, beautiful, good ideas, mostly women as well, who are getting shut down. And there's a whole other thing also with, you know, some of these trustees, many who are older, have their own personal interests because some of them own these artists that are the old guard and they want those shows up because it helps their portfolios, you know, stay at a certain current price. So it's a money game, but you can't keep doing that. That's one humiliating point. I think the other thing is like their pay ain't no way. I, it was, I was no about way. to say, like, it is bonkers that, that, how low the pay is for curators. Gagging. These institutions need to pay their, to any institutional leaders who are, to all of you institutional leaders who are listening. Like, get it together. Curators work so hard. Like, Could you imagine them. the madness of getting 30 to 60K a year in New York City and doing budgets for shows that are 500 to $1.5 million dollars? Do you understand what kind of mindset you got to be in to do that budget, to put them line items down and knowing that your ass is only get, you're not getting enough to like cover anything, right? Like you're going back to like be for real. And then the other thing is like when these curators who are leaving for these galleries, because people have so much to say about that, but I'm just like, look, for these spaces, those curators for the first time will still be able to do their daring ideas still be able to acknowledge the, the the real truth is that these curators can very much affect the market. So they're, you know, so what is a commercial show? Isn't it great to get a young artist paid? You know what I mean? Isn't it great for you to all of a sudden get a double salary, insurance, all these things that these larger galleries are, you know, can pay you. You get to stay hip. You get to work with people who really want, need help to put on their first solo show. Trust me. I wish many of the solo shows that I've seen from a lot of artists get help. <laughs> you know, because like, yeah, some of them look yeah, crazy. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, I think it's a better thing also to know that, you know, yeah, galleries have been running as a car lot for many years, just throw shit up. Now there's an opportunity to make it like an experience, right? That will get me to come out to more and it's free. So as a public person, like, you know, like I'm like, I can roll in a gallery, I can leave, I ain't got to pay, I ain't got to join, pay $100 a year to see like a sh- one show that is not catered to me or my demographic. I am with them. I I think that what it's going to do is allow 
uh, people to do what they love and they will continue to do good work. Some people are getting the opportunity to like really like write, you know, get books off because that's the thing. The museums and the curators are moving at a different pace. The curators are evolving while the museums are not. And so that's why a lot of them are leaving. So that's my key is like, I, I support y'all <laughs> curators and I look forward to working with curators in that capacity because I'm tired of hearing about friends of mine and people I don't even know. And, you know, I'm like, I've signed letters of support, you know, like as for curators to get funding and to have this a show put on at their own museum. That's, it's just, no. Is there any institution, any museums or nonprofit spaces that give you hope in that regard? There's a lot of amazing stuff happening in galleries. And I'm thinking of, you know, any, you know, obviously conceptual fade is, oh, is an example. I'm of not, them. I'm not, no, don't, 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 don't do that. <laughs> no, but, that. you know, is there anyone, is there any other organization that gives you hope yeah, as, as a model, absolutely. you think, that we can look to? My favorite ones. I mean, um, I have never been to the Walker. It's probably one of on my top desired lists. One of my favorite, um, if not my favorite institution is the World Institute of Palais de Tokyo in uh, Paris, I am in love with that space. <laughs> I just, I think I just like raw stuff, but I think it's such a beautiful and elegant space. And I can see when someone curates, I can see their hand just because it's such an odd space. The Schollinger, I just went to that. I don't even know how I'm saying it right. Oh. Uh, it's my first time. Uh, I have to shout out. The, in Basel. Yeah, that was, it was a also first gorgeous, time. gorgeous space. Um, but I understand it's a different kind of space. Kunstala Basel, I learned a ton. I had gone there before I had offered to do the show there. And I just was like amazed. Uh, like I love Kunstala's in, in general. I think they're really in tune. And I think that that's what also made me really love my experience at 52 Walker because it felt like it was worth something. So yeah, those were experiences and those are like a couple of it, just a couple of institutions. Our Institute of Chicago is a place that I seek to go out to. There's a couple of spaces. At the end of every conversation, to my point about relentless positivity, which some people find really bloody exhausting and infuriating, but we do like to try and close on a forward-looking note. And so we end every conversation by asking folks, um, what are they looking forward to in the next six months? Mm. Mm. And I'm looking forward to um, seeing Ashley James' show, uh, Going Dark at the Guggenheim. I mean, I'm oh, in yeah. that show, but it's I'll not I'll be there about, for the opening too. I'll see I'll you see there. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reason I'm just excited about it is just like, just the idea of it <laughs> and seeing what it's going to do to the Guggenheim space is like, uh, I, I'm just thrilled to try to see what that looks like. It's probably one of the more exciting shows I've heard about in a very long time. And again, I'm not just saying it because she asked me to be a part of it. I think Ashley has a strong voice and um, I'm very excited to see that. Six months, I think that's going to hit into the Steve McQueen uh, Dia sh show that's going down with the Schalager. Amazing. I don't even know what it is, but I, they just showed a picture of a cracked floor with a red light. I was like, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what. So like flights to Basel have been booked. With Steve, 
everything with Steve McQueen. I um, missed the Tate show that a lot of people unfortunately missed that, you know, had to come down and stuff. But I'm such a fan of his work and thrilled to see something that will occupy that that space in the lower level. And, uh, you know, like Dia Beacon, I believe. That's a that's a big one for me. I'm very excited about Dune. <laughs> I know that's like film, but oh hell yes. <laughs> but I I know that everything's being pushed back. I mean, and then I guess the last thing I'll say is like, on a very optimistic note, I in support of all my friends who are uh, film people and filmmakers and writers and actors. I'm very hopeful that the strike will give everybody what they actually deserve and need because it's a it's a very crucial thing that I think also the art world will learn from. So I'm hoping that that happens hopefully within the next six months because I don't want to see this shit on TV. I want the good shows to nah. come back. <laughs> and I want, and yeah. I want my people to get paid, you know, and yeah. not have AI voices. You know, there's so. only so many oh episodes God. of Housewives I can take, and now I'm ready it's, for good shows. We good already writing, know what the reality <laughs> thing can be, and I just really, we need to stop it. So yeah. I'm learning so much from this experience, and I am di- like, I really hope that they get everything. I hope they get everything they ask for. Amen. Tiana, that's a, a really fabulous place to end. So a massive thank you for making time to chat with us today. My brain has been stretched in some very rewarding ways and I'm very grateful so thank you thank you yeah thank you for making the time this is a really fun conversation and I look forward to seeing you soon yeah for sure thanks for listening to this episode of art from the outside as a friendly reminder please subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes Stitcher Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at art from the outside podcast our sound engineering is by hangar studios Photography by Enrique Vega and original music by Lola's Ghost. Stay well, be safe, and hope you'll join us for the next episode.